Welcome into a brand new episode of 300 Yards to Unknown. I'm Rick Gaiman coming to you from Blue Wire Studios inside the Win Las Vegas. And we're going to talk golf, but can we talk pickleball for a second? I, didn't, I knew pickleball was popular. I knew it. I knew it's the fastest rising sport in America. I know young and old are taking over the pickleball courts, but you don't really realize until you try to play pickleball, right? Armina and I tried to, tried to play pickleball like two days ago, woke up early, 6.45 a.m., we're headed over to the courts. You get to the courts, it's packed. People waiting on the sidelines, people up against the fence. Okay, let's try somewhere else. Go to courts number two. Packed, same thing. Tried three separate courts at 6.45 on a Thursday morning. Zero availability. Uh, how do I invest in pickleball? I, who's getting rich off of pickleball? Equipment people, I suppose. Uh, maybe tournaments. Maybe are, are they selling court time? I might I might pay for court time at this point. It needs to be Rick Pickle good because uh, there's a lot of opportunity seemingly in pickleball. I get it, right? It's actually there are a, a few similarities to um, to golf where you have a situation where you can play it recreationally well into your I don't know. I saw some pretty old people out there, 80s. Maybe that's a bit aggressive. 70s. Uh, these retirement homes are building like 20 courts at a time, putting lights on them, seating, viewership. It's unbelievable. So so good on pickleball, figuring it out. Uh, I wish I could buy stock in pickleball. I guess that's not going to happen. Okay. Uh, I got a couple of topics here. We'll, we'll call this a little bit of a, a, a news roundup because I've got topics that individually are probably not worth an entire episode, but they're things that need to be discussed. We've got to keep them on our radar. We've got to give them enough oxygen to keep them going. As I'm recording this, uh, the United States on the verge of a President's Cup victory in a route. And as you're listening to this, it's probably already clinched. Uh, and they've probably already popped the champagne. Uh, unless the, unless something freaky happens on Saturday afternoon or, or early in Sunday singles, it's going to be another route for the United States. And you start to hear, hear the murmurs, right? What is this competition? Why do we have it? Would it be better if it was the PGA Tour versus Live? Would that be more interesting? And while I like the President's Cup a lot, right? You only get you only get this style of team golf once a year, you know, alternating between the President's Cup and the Ryder Cup. I, I like it, but there are there are few examples in sport that when you have a completely one-sided, lopsided competition, doesn't end well. There's not a lot of there's not a lot of future in it. There's not a lot of big brand building in it. There's not a lot of money in it. There's not a lot of prestige in it. Why do people tune into the Ryder Cup? Because the Ryder Cup's competitive. The Americans have not won on European soil in 30 years. 30 years. It's competitive. We've seen upsets. We've seen runaway routes. We've seen it all. It's way more competitive. The President's Cup has a problem. This is the 14th edition. United States is 11-1-1. Yikes. Not good. Not good at all. So how do you fix it? Because I don't think you can, you can't punt this thing away. And for the people arguing, it'd be a lot more competitive if the internationals had Abraham Anser and Cameron Smith and Joaquin Neiman. You're right. 
but even with those guys, this was still likely to be a United States route. Uh, it's just a complete disproportionate skill level that we have out there right now. The depth of the United States team is jarring. Um, my buddy Kyle Porter tweeted out that the 10th best player on the United States team in the last six months is twice a major champion. That's Colin Morikawa. 10th best player in the last six months is Colin Morikawa. You're just in trouble when the United States and Captain Davis Love III can literally close his eyes, pick any combination, and probably put together a pair that will be heavily favorited over the international team. So how do we fix it? What are our options here? I think there's two viable options. Uh, having this thing go away is not an option. It's fun. It's great. If you want to talk about growing the game, there are seven different countries represented on the international team right now. Uh, that's how you grow the game. Okay, that's a really good step in growing the game outside of North America, outside of Europe. So how can we make it more competitive? As with anything, uh, we, can, we can make less matches, right? We can increase the volatility. Right now, there's 30 matches. First, the 15 and a half points wins. 30 matches is a lot when the United States team is favored in basically every single match, right? And, and that's, that's going to be a lot. So what they do is on Thursday, they play five matches. Friday, they play five. And then on, on uh, Saturday, it's eight matches spread over two sessions of four each. What if it was three matches on Thursday, three matches on Friday, and six matches on Saturday, and then we end with Sunday singles? Anytime you decrease the sample size, you are going to get more volatile results. If I play Rory McIlroy, heads up in golf, over 1,000 holes, I lose every time. If I play him over 10 holes, I lose every time. If I play him over five holes, I probably lose every time. If I play him over one hole, I'm going to win eventually. It's not going to be often, but I'm, I'm going to win eventually. I'm going to get lucky. I'm going to hole out. I'm going to make a birdie while he makes a par. Something's going to happen where I beat Rory McIlroy because the sample size is as small as possible. So can we shorten this sample size? What's the harm in that, right? You're getting... We're on the verge of, I don't know what it's going to finish. This could be a 23-7 to 7 blowout, a route by the United States. Who cares if it's, I don't know, 19-8, uh, to 8, right? Is that, any, is that any better? What if it's 16-6? to 6? Is, that, is that any better? At least it gives the opportunity for the internationals to be competitive going into Sunday singles. And think about it. It also helps that the international squad is super, super top-heavy. They might not have played like it this week, but the best players that the internationals have are uh, Sung J.M. and Hideki Matsuyama and Tom Kim and Corey Connors, who's been horrible to this point of me recording this episode. Um, Adam Scott, have I mentioned him? If you could roll those guys out for uh, basically every single match, and maybe you'd, have to, maybe you'd have to shorten the rosters. Maybe you only have 10 guys on the team. Who knows? I don't know. We'll figure it out. But there is a real incentive to only playing... Three matches on Thursday, three on Friday, six on Saturday. Then everybody plays on Sunday. And you could go back to the rule. Remember, there used to be a rule that you didn't have to play a, a match before singles. That's a rule now. So Kevin Kisner, Billy Horschel, uh, Mito Pereira, I think Christian Bezadenhout, as I'm recording this, is only going to play one match and then his singles match because that's the new rule. You're required to play one match before Sunday. What if we get away? What if we just do away with that? Just make this thing really, really volatile. It'd be a lot more interesting. You could call some we some years, oh, that's a fluke win by the internationals. Who cares? 
at least they won, right? At least they pulled it off. It's still going to be a lot more competitive. The other way to make this competitive, and this is this is growing in popularity, and I I, I kind of dig this, is to add uh, a mixed element to this. Uh, add the ladies in, right? So this has been something that has been argued for other events. Why, why is the Zurich Classic not a mixed event? Why isn't there a mixed event on, of, on the PGA Tour schedule, right? The European Tour has done this. They've had literally mixed events where uh, there's a, I mean, well, the European Tour has done it a couple of different ways. They've had it where there's two separate leaderboards and the women and the men are playing together, but they're playing for their own individual championships. And then they had a mixed event in which uh, everyone was on one leaderboard, which is kind of fun. Why are we not introducing? There, there's nothing like that on the PGA Tour, and this would be the perfect time to introduce it. Why is this perfect? Because for the men, uh, the players from North America, the players from the United States are disproportionately better than the players in the rest of the world. In the ladies game, it's the complete opposite. The best players uh, in the ladies game are disproportionately from the rest of the world compared to the United States. So Golf Digest did... Um, a nice little article about this, and they proposed some of these teams. And when you hear these teams, they just instantly feel way more competitive. So the United States team, the way that they did this is to take six men, six women, and then you can keep the format essentially exactly the same. So the United States team, the men would be Scotty Scheffler, Xander Shoffley, Justin Thomas, Colin Morikawa, Sam Burns, Patrick Cantlay, all stalwarts on the current United States team. And then you pair them up, or at least add to the squad, Nellie Corda, Lexi Thompson, Jennifer Cupcho, Danielle Kang, Vegas, Jessica Corda, and Megan Kang. Okay, the United States team is still stacked, right? They've got the best men in the world. They've got the best women in the world. It's an absolutely stacked squad. No, no doubt about it. But that is no different than what you're getting this week right now. Already a stacked President's Cup team. The international team gets a lot more interesting. So you have your men in Hideki Matsuyama, Sung J.M., Adam Scott, Corey Connors, uh, Tom Kim, and Taylor Pendrith. Okay, not as good as the American men, but the international squad was already incredibly top-heavy, and they still have those same best players at the top. Here's where it gets interesting. You add in Jin, Jin Young Ko, Lydia Ko, Minji Lee, Brooke Henderson, uh, Ju Hyo Kim, and, oh, Ataya Takuli. We've just flipped the script now. Are the internationals the favorites? Probably not, but it's much closer to a coin flip, right? These are some of the best players in the ladies game that are getting added to the international squad as opposed to getting added to the United States game. You could argue this is not only making it more competitive, it's not only growing the game globally, but it's growing the game also, to ladies, this is like, to me, this is almost a no-brainer. Whether, whether or not you can get uh, the PGA Tour and the powers that be to sign off on a complete change of President's Cup format, I don't know the answer to that. That might be unlikely. Can we just do this instead? Can we do this somehow, right? I mean, there's a Solheim Cup, which is similar to the Ryder Cup that just the ladies participate in. There are infrastructures in place uh, to make this happen. It just has to happen. Could be interesting. I guarantee the Americans would not go 11-1-1 with an international lineup that looks like that in the mixed game. The other thing that I find uh, super interesting now 
in the 2022 version of the President's Cup and the Solheim Cup. And again, there's some really good articles out there on this, but it is music to my ears that captains of now Ryder Cups, President's Cups, Solheim Cups are leaning into data. So I think the PGA Tour, or I shouldn't say that, golf in general um, is probably in... 2007 baseball, right? We're kind of like starting this money ball. Obviously, what Billy Bean did was earlier than that, right? It was like 2000, 2001. Um, but we're starting to get a larger mass adoption of statistics that are being used by players to make decisions based on where they should and should not play. Um, trainers and coaches who are telling golfers how to play golf courses optimally. And we're now seeing it go to these team events, trying to figure out who should make the team and who should be paired together. We saw it this week at the President's Cup. Trevor Immelman's, um, you know, his round one foursomes pairings were probably pretty surprising. Adam Scott and Hideki Matsuyama, Sung J M and Corey Connors, Tom Kim and KH Lee, Siwoo Kim and Cam Davis. Finally, Taylor Pendrith and Mito Pereira. This is long gone from the days that we just pair guys together that are friends. Long gone from the days of we just pair guys together because they're from the same country or they speak the same language. This, it, these are so strange of pairings that they can only be created by data, quite frankly. So I know Captain Trevor Rimmelman and his team have been working on this for, for months to be able to come up with teams that best fit one another. And then there's probably is some type of strategy for what order you put them in or who they're going to pair up against, but we're probably not deep enough into that. The problem with this is we have such a small sample size, right? You know, Ernie Els was such a great data guy in 2019 at the President's Cup, and they almost stole that away from the U.S., and they were leading going into Sunday singles. And we've seen that a lot of times the United States does not necessarily have to use data because they can put Scotty Scheffler and Sam Burns together three times because they're best buds or something like that, as opposed to just finding the optimal combinations. That's an embarrassment of riches that the United States has. But uh, U.S. Captain Stacey Lewis is digging into the new LPGA data. So if you haven't been following this, uh, LPGA now has the strokes gain data, right? They've been working with KPMG. They've been doing the performance insights. They've been getting it all, all available to that tour, which is not only great for them, it's great for the viewers, and it's great for building your brand when eventually they can come in and say, okay, hey, DraftKings, we have a data feed. Let's offer some more contests. Hey, uh, Sportsbook X, Y, and Z, we've got all this data available. We can get it to you in real time. Let's start getting LPGA more available. It's how you grow the game, at least to a younger audience that's interested in that. And Stacey Lewis has been uh, there, there's there's ton of, a ton of great articles out there, but she's been diving into this data and reaching out to previous uh, captains and assistant captains. And some, some guys are pretty coy with this, right? They don't want to give up the secret formula, but the idea that we are now using data in decision-making on a larger scale in golf feels like we're at uh, an early Moneyball stage, right? Remember when Moneyball first started in Major League Baseball and the, the Oakland A's did their thing and then you had this weird situation where like five owners or five general managers bought into data 
And then a couple years later, like 12 did. And then a few years, like we finally are at the point in baseball where, oh, okay, yeah, I get it. Um, we're talking about uh, exit velocities and we're talking about XFIP and we're making free agent and trade decisions based on this data and it's showing up on the broadcast. We're like 15 years away from that in golf, right? But but that's where we're headed and you're seeing the early signs of that coming out right now via the uh, team events and via the new KPMG uh, data for the ladies. There's probably, I, I know for a fact, there's a lot more happening on an individual basis. Um, guys that are making decisions on golf courses, how they're being played. You just don't hear as much about that because there is not a press conference every single week or on every decision saying, hey, why did you do that? Why did you take driver? Think about Victor, uh, Victor Hovland, Riviera. I think it was the 15th hole. He's driving it down the adjacent fairway to give himself a better angle, to give himself a better number coming in. It's going to punt his strokes gained off the tee numbers. It's going to punt his driving accuracy numbers, but he's putting himself in a better position to succeed. We're seeing golfers attack golf courses in much different ways now that we finally have the data to back it up. It's like my favorite thing in the entire world. All right, next up. Oh, okay, we're in Vegas. About an hour and 15 minutes north of here is Mesquite, Nevada, which by the way is like three minutes from the Arizona border. Does that blow your mind? Because it blew mine, right? How, if I drive north from Las Vegas for an hour and 18 minutes, do I get to Arizona and a different time zone, maybe, uh, depending on what time of year it is? Is that nuts, right? If there was a normal sport edition of real life, it would be the fact that sometimes we're on the same time as Arizona and sometimes we're not. Also, uh, so just to wrap your brain around that the tiny little northwestern corner of Arizona is right there and when you're driving to southern Utah you have to drive through Arizona for like 15 minutes it's kind of crazy but anyway um the long drive is in town this week okay so the long drive which I am very bullish on in general also has a lot of problems so has there ever been a time in golf in which more people know their launch numbers, right? I know my swing speed. I know my ball speed. I know how that equates to my carry distance, thanks to smash factor. I know all of that. Those numbers have never been more accessible. They're not accessible to the entirety of, of recreational golfers, but much, much more available. There are simulators that you can go to. There are, you can go to a bar, hit golf balls at a simulator. You can buy a $500 Mevo and get those numbers. You can um, go to PGA Tour Superstore and for $10 a half hour, seriously, that's what it is, you can rent a bay and find out what your numbers are. Never before has it been more accessible. Never before have you seen so many, every single golfer on the driving range at the professional level, level has a TrackMan, a GC Quad, some type of something that they are carrying with them to get their numbers. They're putting them on the broadcast. Every drive you see, not every drive, but when they show the top tracer, go to Top Golf, get your numbers. There's another way you can do it. You see the top tracer. You not only have the trajectory, you've got the ball speed. 
You have the apex. You have all of this stuff. So long story short, never before have people been more aware or more interested in long drive because that is all, that's all long drive is. Long drive is uh, how fast does the ball come off the club face and can you keep it in the grid? And it's never been more accessible and easy to compare those golfers to me. Okay, so they're in Mesquite. Mesquite's at like, I don't know, 3,000 feet of altitude. I was there for a couple of events last year. I was at the World Championships, which is what's coming up this week. And I was at something else. This is when Bryson left the Ryder Cup and went straight to Mesquite to compete. And I was there for something else. I can't remember what it was. Um, I'll tell you what, it's not that great to watch in person. <laughs> it's not. But the pro- it's not because it's not a good product. It's, it's because they hit it too far. I, you can't see the golf ball. It's unbelievable. The second it comes off their club face, you cannot see it. You don't know whether it's landed in the grid 400 yards away uh, because you never saw it. It's actually not that great of an in-person spectator sport, but would be amazing on television. And the problem that long drive has is that no one knows what long drive is, right? So there's the PLDA, Pro Long Drive Association. There's the PLD, which I think is Pro Long Drivers. There's WLD, which is World Long Drive. There's like six different entities that all claim to be the long drive entity. And they all hold open qualification and regional and national and world championships. And they all declare a world champ. It's, it's almost like boxing, right? I don't know enough about boxing uh, to make this analogy properly, but there's like the WBA title, the WBO. You've got to be the unified champ. I've got to have four belts around me so that you know I'm the guy. There's nobody else that can beat me. I'm the guy. That's what long drive's coming to. The problem is there's not nearly as much money or interest in long drive as there is in boxing uh, to make that actually work. Right? You can't have a sport, uh, a budding sport on the cusp of being huge, separated out onto four different tours. Right, It kind of harkens back a little bit to the PGA Tour versus Live Golf uh, conversation. Sport is really the only place you want a monopoly. Right, You want all your best athletes, you want all your best players, you want all your best competitors in one spot. If all your best competitors in the world, all your longest hitters are spread amongst four different leagues, entities, organizations, whatever you want to call it, it's a problem. So what do we do? How do we fix it? I don't know. Someone's going to have to step in and uh, pay the money to do it. Someone like Golf Channel or ESPN or some entity is going to have to swoop this thing up, put it on television and say, we're the spot. And Kyle Berkshire only comes to our world championships. And Justin James only comes to our world championships. Right and and Martin Borgmeier only comes to our World Championships. It's gonna have to happen. I don't know where the money's coming from or how it's gonna happen. PLDA seems to have the upper hand on this. Um, from my understanding, and they did not disclose the terms of this, but it's my understanding that Bryson is a stakeholder in PLDA, um, which makes sense because he should be if he's gonna promote it and he is going to put eyeballs on it and he's going to get people to participate it. He, he should have some type of equity in this thing. Uh, now he is not, I was originally under the impression that he was going to be competing this week in Mesquite. They released the open qualifiers, which 
I guess anybody, I think you have to qualify through, actually, I don't know why they call it open. I think they call it open because it's not a age-based restriction, but you do have to qualify somewhere through a regional, I believe. Uh, They have open, they have the open division this week, which is that, that's what determines the world champion and Bryson DeChambeau is not in it. I saw the groups for it. Uh, Berkshire, I, I mean, everybody else is here. Tyga's back. Everybody's here. But Bryson's not competing. I don't know if he'll be in town or not. But um, interesting to see what the future of that is because there's never been a better time. They need to strike while the iron's hot. They have a superstar in Kyle Berkshire. They've got just, I don't want to call them villains, but they've got they've got Borgmeier. They've got Justin James. They've got these guys that can play the role. Uh, I don't think you want to miss out on that. It's like missing out on prime Tom Brady, missing out on Kyle Berkshire's prime. Like that would be... It would be terrible. We got to we got to get this figured out. Two more items here. One, uh, we I, we're gonna have to do the live golf conversation. Okay, so this uh, this is just the latest here. We've been saying for a better part of a year that the the big pending legal case will not be the PGA Tour versus live or the live golf players versus the PGA tour. That's not the lawsuit. That's going to decide a lot of things. The lawsuit that's going to decide a lot of things is live golf versus the official world golf rankings. And we are not at lawsuit phase yet, but it's feeling quite close. Uh, so the latest here, uh, a couple of weeks ago, maybe a couple of months ago, month or two ago, the, Live Golf organization uh, submitted their application to the official World Golf Rankings for inclusion of points. That process, uh, notoriously opaque, you don't get a ton of insight into that process, historically has taken up to a year or about a year for the OWGR to approve it and start issuing points. Greg Norman uh, sent a letter to the OWGR board uh, with the names of 48 golfers, all 48 golfers that were in attendance at Live Golf Chicago signing it, essentially saying you need to give us points now and you need to apply them retroactively. This is where things start to get a little bit sticky. Um, Does Live deserve points? Well, that's all right. I I thought that was going to be the easy layup question that I was going to start with. Uh, It's not as easy as it seems. Should, (laughs) should live golf eventually get points? Like from, in my opinion, a hundred percent, right? When you, when you, they're probably the second best tour on planet earth. I understand they have Cam Smith. I understand that they have Dustin Johnson. I understand they have all these guys that are previously ranked inside the top 30 in the world. I, I, I get it. I get it. Under their current system, it would be very difficult for any entity, let alone the official World Golf Ranking System, to give them points. It would be hard for you and I to come up with some type of system that accurately provides points to all the tours that are currently getting OWGR points and live golf. So there are a handful of OWGR policies or compulsory elements that live golf does not follow. Um, 
OWGR requires that competitions are contested over 72 holes, except for developmental tours. So the exceptions are a BEMA TV tour, the Alps golf tour, the Euro pro tour, et cetera, et cetera. And I know what you're thinking. If they're getting OWGR points, how is live not? I get it. I get it. There's a system in place. So they require competitions to be contested over 72 holes. They require open annual qualifying at the start of each season. Something that Liv does not, also does not have. They are, by definition, by their own definition, it is Live Golf Invitational. They are an invitational system. They are a system that has um, requirements for some, regular uh, relegation for some, but not for others. Phil Mickelson cannot play himself off this tour. He can't. They've paid too much for him. They will not let him play his way off this tour. Uh, if he plays poorly. James Pyatt uh, is a perfect example of this. James Pyatt has never made a cut in a professional event, uh, has never broken 70 in a professional event. He's on the tour. So how are we going to assign points accurately when the top of that tour is Dustin Johnson, Camp Smith, the bottom of the tour is um, James Pyatt? How are we going to accurately do that? Uh, the other problem is going to be, and, and I, I already know the, the defenders are going to say, but Rick, what about sponsors' exemptions? Yeah, sponsors' exemptions stink on the PGA Tour. It allows the sponsors, who pay a lot of money, to literally let anyone play. Tony Romo, Steph Curry, Marty Fish should not be playing in PGA Tour events. They should not be. Uh, now, you could argue... There's a system in place for sponsors' exemptions. Uh, and that a golfer is only allowed to accept seven exemptions a year, right? There's, there's a limit to how... If, if every single sponsor colluded and wanted Tony Romo to play 35 times, he could not. Okay? He could not. There needs to be a, a cut. 36 holes. Whether you're playing 54th or 72. Our cuts coming to a future uh, live golf event. We'll see. A field size of 75 players or more over a full season. But Rick, the Hero World Challenge gets OWGR points. But Rick, the Tour Championship gets OWGR points. I get it. 75 players on average over the course of a season. So when it's 144 or 156, that's doing all the work for the Hero World Challenge, doing all the work for the Tour Championship. Um there's a couple others, you know, regional qualifiers, reasonable access for local players, et cetera, et cetera. Live Golf has made uh, zero attempts to abide by, abide by these. You'd think it'd be quite simple to turn this into a 72-hole league or just make a cut after 36, um, raise, your, raise your field to 75, and you'd probably have OWGR points. You'd probably have them. Right, Because I don't think the OWGR wants to be the one to stick their neck out and say, hey, we're going to draw the line here. If they get close enough to these requirements, I think they could get them. And I think they should eventually get them. Getting them re retroactively is going to be, that's a tough ask, I think. Um, but I think they should eventually get them. And I think they will, but not in the current state. And not with the idea that some of these guys cannot be relegated off this tour the problem's going to be and the, the, the we're already seeing it and we we envisioned we saw this coming 
these live golf guys, their OWGR uh, ratings are tanking, right? They're tanking. We're already seeing guys that are dropping 30 or 40 spots because they've played zero OWGR sanctioned events for months. And if it does take a year or 10 more months for this to get resolved and they don't get points retroactively, which I don't know how you're going to essentially do that, um, then you are probably not going to see those guys in major championships, right? That's how it works. Now, majors could just say, hey, we're not going to look at OWGR anymore. That I, I don't think that's going to happen. But this is, this, is the big, this is the big thing brewing. This is, if, if Liv was a little bit flexible, I think they could get this done fairly quickly here, um, which we'll see. You know, next year, they're going to go to 14 events. Are they going to increase the fields? Are they going to lean into the Asian tour? Right, that the smartest thing I thought Liv ever did was partner and dump two hundred million dollars into the Asian Tour. That's got to be part of your qualification system. Bring those guys over, let them fill out the fields. You you cannot spend a billion dollars on talent and that talent not play major championships when you are seemingly pretty close to a solution that would get them OWGR points to get them into major championships. It would be uh, a total just whiff by Greg Norman if they are not able to figure this thing out soon. And then finally, uh, Patrick Reed has been outspoken this week. Dude, Patrick Reed sucks. And I don't say that about like literally anybody, but Patrick Reed sucks. And there is a lot of evidence of that. Um, whether you believe it or not, or think that it is a giant conspiracy against him over the last 15 years, there have been countless uh, examples, both public and private, that he is probably cheating on the golf course pretty frequently. Right, We've seen it on television a couple of times in front of the cameras. We've heard plenty of stories about it from teammates, friends, and foes alike. Um, the, the, the laundry list of evidence is, is pretty long. And outside of that, even, even, if it, even if it was just this guy might be cheating on the golf course, which is as bad as it gets, even if it was just the fact that he's kind of a jerk, sucks too, right? I mean... Are we still not, are we still acting like he doesn't have a burner account that he uses to tweet bad things about his teammates and everybody else on the PGA tour? Are we acting like that's not a real thing? Right? That's 100% true. It's probably his wife Justine, that's pretty well uh reported that she's out there or he's out but whatever it is, he's not stopping it. Like we're just going to act like that's not happening. Um Okay, that's fine. We'll just we'll we'll just act like none of that has ever happened. So he goes to live and he says, "This is amazing. I no no no. It's not about the money. I get to spend more time with my family." Great, Patrick. That's awesome. I'm stoked for you. Oh wait, he's played five events in September in which he has flown all over the globe to play at Wentworth. Then he goes to France. I mean, then he goes to Chicago. This guy has racked up more frequent flyer miles than anybody else in professional golf after telling us how important it was for him to stay home 
and play uh, or, and be with his family. Then let's just say that never happened either, which is just he's a liar, right? And that he uh, just took the bag, which I don't care about. Just say it. Let's say that that's all not true. He has the gall to go to France and say that the treatment that he has received from the DP World Tour is a slap in the face. His words, not mine. He's made $5.4 million in four events on Live Golf. He has played every DP World Tour event that he has wanted to play. And he's calling it a slap in the face and that he is being shunned by the tour. His quote, I'm here to support the Tour of France and all the people who are here, but I don't see why we can't move from the live, that's what he said, to the European Tour, like we usually move from the PGA Tour to the European Tour. Uh, a lot of players understand and support my choice and have nothing against me. I didn't feel any animosity against me from them, end quote. Uh, he would go on to say that might be it. He would go on to say a bunch of nonsense. He sucks. Right. Like, I don't know. I, I give these guys the benefit of the doubt. I don't care if they took the money. I don't care that they lied about it. But we've got a decade of evidence that Patrick Reed sucks. That's why he was such a good villain. He was such a great villain, wasn't he? Oh, man. It was the best. He was great. For, he was great for the game. Great for eyeballs. Right. Did he was he was he part of the pip? Because he should have been because everybody always wants to talk about him. Uh but like, dude, you like he is not. He sued. Oh, I forgot. He also sued Brandel Chambly for like seven hundred fifty million dollars um, for libel for calling him a cheater on television. <laughs> and he hired like the scummiest lawyer who's never won a case in his life. Like, there's no like this is. Uh, it's just uh, there's probably a dozen things I'm forgetting. I hope maybe I'll, I hope I, maybe I should cut. I hope I don't get sued after this. Oh my gosh. I don't know. I don't get it. He stinks. Um, okay. So as you're watching this, the president's cup is, uh, probably wrapping up or it's already over and barring a miracle upon miracle. The United States has won again, improving their record to 12, one and one in 14 president's cups. So think long and hard about some ways that we can improve that. Think long and hard. I'll leave you with this because this also has my attention. Why is, uh, why is season long golf not popular season long fantasy golf? Why? Why? Uh, usually there is an equal level of interest in the DFS version of a sport and the season-long version of a sport. Usually. There are some exceptions. I mean, season-long baseball is like only for sickos. But in a format that is once a week, much very similar to football, why does one version of that sport get a lot more attention than the other? General thought-provoking question. Tweet me what you think. Comment below with what you think. I'm doing a little bit of market research. We're going to fix this. We're going to fix the season-long fantasy golf thing. Uh, but tell me why you think. I have a couple of reasons in my mind, which we'll cover on an episode in the future. But I want to know what you're thinking about. Okay. Enjoy the rest of your weekend or week, depending on when you're listening to this. Uh, you can tweet me at Rick Run Good. This has been another episode of 300 Yards to Unknown. Catch you next time.